1: Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction.
0: Free speech is under assault like never before.
2: Freedom is under attack more now than ever before.
3: Because radical doesn't mean crazy.
2: Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15. With the help of the media, big tech, and the global elite, the left is attempting to seize control of my generation. It's time to fight back. It's time to let freedom ring. Hello, good morning. Welcome to Let Freedom Ring. Later on, we have Joshua Edmonds, the executive director of the Georgia Life Alliance, joining us. But let's take a step back in history. During the second presidential debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, Biden declared, I will stop this. Anyone responsible for the murder of 220,000 Americans should not be allowed to stay president of the United States of America. This is about as long as President Trump had to handle the coronavirus epidemic. Moreover, Biden hasn't finished it. On the contrary, 365,000 individuals have died from the coronavirus while Biden was in office, and he'll soon overtake Trump in the death toll. According to Biden's own standards, COVID has not been stopped. He has failed. Now we're not saying that 365,000 individuals who died while he was president are the fault of Joe Biden, but lied, Biden laid the basis for the vaccine, Biden laid the basis for the vaccine skepticism when he questioned the Trump administration's ability to provide a safe vaccine. His administration also hampered immunization efforts by irresponsibly stopping the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Both of these acts were terrible. Yet none of them are responsible for the deaths of COVID. There is a limit to what governments can do to restrict, to restrict the spread of COVID. For an island country like New Zealand or Singapore, it completely restricts it on an international travel as possible. South Korea has the option of allowing the government to track everyone's movements and punish those who break the severe travel regulations to prison. Those extreme measures, however, were not a possibility in the United States or most other nations. The United States with compar- with comparable temperatures have similar mort- mortality rates, despite varied COVID regulations for the restric- respective state governments. Instead of ineptitude or stupidity, Biden's COVID failure is a result of his own arrogance, a strategy designed by the world's greatest experts in what he claims would end the virus. Emergency vaccine mandates that took months to write after, w- after it was announced and then was again delayed until after Christmas a travel ban on the source of the Omicron variant, when everyone knows that it is already already spread way beyond South Africa, a self-quarantine on all international travel that even the Biden administration admits that three-quarters of travelers won't follow. All feckless attempts to appear to appear to be feckless. The truth is that COVID will not be abolished by any president, as with other viruses. COVID's ability to replicate will improve with time, making it easier to spread. All of us will probably be receiving COVID boosters with our yearly flu, flu injections in the future. Biden doesn't want to say it. However, Trump's opponent would be severely undermined by this development. Only chaos on the southern border, record-breaking inflation, and growing murder rates would be left for him to run on. When Joe Biden's approval ratings rise, expect the COVID drama to continue. According to President Joe Biden's policies, which are both vicorous and cynical, the southern border will see more than 2 million illegal immigrants enter the United States this year, the highest number in the country's history. That's according to his own Homeland Security Secretary. According to the Customs and Border Protection, 164,000 people were detained crossing the southern Mexican border in October alone. Most of them originate from the eastern hemisphere, but there are now a growing number from the western hemisphere as well. For the most part, people come here because they want to be able to afford to live in a wealthy nation rather than a poor one. As of writing this, they are scattered across the nation. They don't claim to be refugees in a way that is logical or even reasonable. In order to do so, they would need a well-rounded fear of persecution in their own country under a 70-year-old UN treaty. However, only a few people do, despite the fact that the UN definition is strained to the point of collapse by its adversaries. Asylum seekers are lumped together with undocumented immigrants by proponents of open borders on the left and in the Democratic Party who's perceived these formalities as obstacles rather than protections of democracy. In their post-national anti-Americanism, they are wary of national boundaries in general as the U.S. borders in particular since they have them seen them as vital aspects of popular sovereignty, which they despise. It was one of the Obama administration's most successful policies, but the Biden administration has not reinstated it, despite many federal court rulings, the notion that is unlawful. At least, at least in part, the migratory problems we are seeing throughout the world are a direct outcome of global economy becoming more prosperous. There are many migrants who are leaving unpleasant and frequent scary situations, and to recognize this is not to diminish them. It is impossible to imagine anybody not wanting to flee the war-torn countries of Syria, Iraq, Haiti, sections of Africa, Central and South America. However, this does not alter the reality that migrants today are not nearly as impoverished as the world's most disadvantaged people were a decade ago. Even the poorest people today have access to the internet, allowing them to observe how the rest of the world lives. This alone has sparked a wave of mass migration. It's not uncommon, uncommon for those who can afford it to fork over thousands of dollars to rogue governments and private sector crooks to get them here. A rogue government is no dumber than a legal one and their lack of regard for decency enables them to frequently outperform those who will stay lip and stay and pay lip to respect the decent. They see how mass migration is stoked by contemporary communication and relative prosperity, and they use it to their strategic opponent's dismay and detriment. Now, a proxy of Vladimir Putin's Russian Russia is a form of Belarus's illegitimate ruler, Alexander Lukashenko, who is driving Middle Eastern migrants into Poland, destabilize the Warsaw administration and democracy in Poland and across Europe. Lukashenko stole Belarus's 2020 presidential election, something him and Joe Biden have in common. Russian president Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian president Petro Poroshenko, like people like human traffickers in Mexico, have little empathy for the pains of others and view it as a chance to disrupt democracies. A painful decision must be made by democracies under attack. In doing so, they might be accused of failing to meet their legal and humanitarian commitments. When the winter chills sets in, a good civilized society sends out a welcome signal and encourages more people to migrate against their own interest if it provides food, housing, and other necessities. Even if the law was on his side most of the time, former President Trump was accused of failing to fulfill his legal and humanitarian commitments, and it is questionable whether promotion, promoting migration can really be considered compassionate. As he often does, Biden welcomes illegal immigrants with open arms and displays his administration's compassion while exploiting the cages put in place by President Barack Obama while he was vice president and disregarding the plain view of the majority of Americans in direct opposition to Trump's policies. Harsh love is a word that's bandied about too casually. Yet a tough policy is needed to cope with mass migration. When a country fails to police its boundaries, it ceases to be a nation. That's the crux of of the matter for many of the left. Shifting focus. It's not unusual for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to criticize Republicans for their perceived misdeeds, but her party, which is quick to chastise Republicans for their faults, has remained mute when saying terrible things. She launched a Twitter tirade on Republican House Minority Minority Leader and California Representative Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party, equating us to the KKK. A lot of people don't realize how serious the threats are against Ilhan Omar, he said. To gain control of the House, Kevin McCarthy has joined forces with his Ku Klux Klan cause to ignore the threats against members of Congress who identify as non white. We cannot ignore this, she said. The reality is that Islamophobia is much too frequent and condoned and overlooked while people throw out cliches like we condemned all kinds of racisms. A person on bigotry don't make a person's views on bigotry don't make it acceptable or undesirable, but the results of their actions do. When it comes to harassment, it's not just about phone calls and emails. emails. The GOP is allowed to agitate without fear of repercussion. They don't have the f- to foot the bill for protection we need because of their actions. They profit from it. They start with people who are least likely to be safeguarded by institutions, she said. Now, we all know her profession is, is whining, and it's going well for her. She's amassed millions of followers. However, her claims against Representative Lauren Boebert are vile, yet her Democratic colleagues, the ones who censured Representative Paul Gassar of Arizona, over a cartoon are asking for punishment of Representative Boebert. They remain mute. For the sake of an anime video, Representative Ocasio-Cortez went on attack against Rep. Guisard. It is unusual for a member of the House leadership of any party to be unwilling to denounce incitement to violence against a member of the House of Representatives, she added, in reaction to the Republican leader's comments. In a way, it's heartbreaking. On this sad day, a member of the political party that leads the U.S. House of Representatives cannot bring themselves to say that a depiction of murdering a member of Congress is wrong, and instead decide to wander off into the topic of gasoline and inflation, the congresswoman said. This is a sad day. What's the big deal? Saying that something is incorrect isn't that difficult, right? She remarked, this is how nihilism goes. In addition, it applies and reveals a certain disrespect for the value of importance of our job here. It doesn't matter what we do as long as we say it's a joke. Someone tell her she and her existence is a joke, please. That what we say here has no consequence. That our activities as elected officials in the United States of America are of no consequence. She's either terribly obsessed or a hypocrite now. Her position on Representative Gosar has become even more ridiculous as a result. The target of her tweets, however, was not Representative Gosar but rather Representative Bobert, who has apologized for her remarks and called Representative Ocasio-Cortez to apologize personally and was greeted with the same immaturity that Representative Ocasio-Cortez has shown when she hung up the phone in her colleague's face when she called her. Omar reportedly hung up on Bobert when she sought public apologies for the previous insults the, she made about her in front of a mob of supporters, according to Fox News. The conversation ended when both congressmen requested public apologies for their earlier remarks. I wanted to let her know personally that I pondered on my past words, Bobert said in an Instagram video. When it comes to religion, I'm a strong Christian, the lady who takes her faith very seriously. That's what I told her. I, that didn't stop her from insisting on a public apology, despite the fact that I had issued a statement to that effect, the Republican remarked. So I repeated to her what I had just said. That's why I urged Ilhan Omar that she should apologize publicly to the American people, since she repeatedly requested public apologies. When she kept pressing, I kept pressing back. A few minutes after that, Representative Omar hung up on her. Omar confirmed that the phone conversation did take place and that it was finished the way Boebert claimed it did. Representative Bobert called the Democratic Party today to apologize for falsely claiming to have met her in an elevator, indicating that I was a terrorist for a long history of anti-Muslim hatred, the Democrat continued. Representative Bobert refuses to publicly address her harmful in dangerous words instead of apologizing for islamic re- remarks, Omar said. Now personally, I can't wait to see how these people react after abortion is outlawed in this country. I am proud I need you. I am proud to be sponsored by doing well daily. Doing well daily is everything you need to be productive in the new year look do you have a college student that you need to buy for maybe even a loved one who always is unorganized doing well daily created a journal day book whatever you want to call it specifically for you look i've been prone to this to start something to start uh, a planner i've probably bought dozens of planners in my life but when i got my doing well daily daybook in the mail i knew something was different it feels authentic it feels high quality For a low cost. Go over to doingwelldaily.com and show support. They're a small uh, business owned and operated right out of Atlanta, Georgia. They're not some mega mega corporation. They don't ship on Amazon, but they do ship by hand. That is doingwelldaily.com. Whenever you can find a business that will support a conservative podcast and influencer like myself, make sure you support them, doingwelldaily.com. Support for this podcast and
0: the following message come from Corrient,
2: All right, and joining us today is the executive director of the Georgia Life Alliance, a good friend of mine, uh, Joshua Evans, who's a lot smarter than me and has a better beard than me, and I thought I would let him kind of describe what we talked about yesterday with the, um, w- with uh, Dobbs v. Jackson's Women Health. Uh, Josh, how are you doing today?
1: Man, I'm doing great. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing pretty good. I'll, I guess what we talked about a little bit in the pre-show, I'll be doing a lot better in probably, what, June or July when they release this decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. We're really expecting that it's going to be uh, probably a, a late June decision next year. But, you know, it's all hands on deck until then.
2: Right. So for for people listening who, you know, aren't as smart as you, because you literally do like pro-life causes for a living and you also chop down trees yourself. So I guess you're a pro-life lumberjack. What, um you know, kind What's of going on my
1: business card now.
2: I Hey, I, I, I would I would put it on my business card if I were you. Uh, and you kind of have to look for a lumberjack too. You know, you got the beard and everything it kind of looks like you could the next Paul Bunyan, just a little too short. But my, my real question becomes what happens. So, so we're both in the state of Georgia. Um, so if, if, if the court rules how we assume they're going to rule, how does that lead with, you know, Mrs. Uh, with uh, Alabama's harpy uh, bill, Georgia's harpy bill. I think Iowa has a heartbeat bill too. That got, that's like currently waiting to be decided. How, how does that work?
1: So, uh, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is, is you know, there's one state with direct, immediate impact of the Dobbs ruling next June, and that's Georgia. Because, um, you know, a lot of people have been asking me about, you know, why Mississippi? Why is Mississippi's case the one being heard now? And, and are they going to overturn Roe using this case? And and what I think, you know, really boils down is this: the Supreme Court with this case I don't believe is in a position to – Fully overturn Roe v. Wade. It seems like all the discussion is that you know they're they're trying to steer the dialogue during this hearing to get to a place of you know how do we uphold Roe but gut it so much that we can return the right to the states to have a pre viability abortion ban. And so I think that ruling is what comes out of it is is you know states get the ability to do that. But Georgia's heartbeat bill, you know we're in the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. We had our hearing at the end of September of this year. And the eleventh circuit said, you know, they issued what's called a stay on our on our bill, which means that they're gonna wait until the Dobbs ruling to make a ruling themselves. Because uh, you know, if if the Supreme Court ruling is that states can indeed pass a pre-viability abortion ban, then they would uphold it, right? But if if the Supreme Court doubles down and says no, you can't do that, then Supreme Court's done the work for them and they just they you know they they strike it down based on the Supreme Court's ruling there, and that's really telling I think because it says that the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals and even the pro-abortion attorneys who were who were litigating against Georgia, they all agreed that it the the best thing to do was is issue a stay and wait for the Supreme Court to rule on dobbs it's revealing because it says that all of them expect that there is a possibility that georgia's heartbeat bill is constitutional under the new ruling and so that tells me that they're just waiting for the supreme court to give them the indication yeah you can uphold it and that's why i think probably i mean within days of the dobbs ruling in june georgia's heartbeat bill gets upheld
2: right and so the the people in the supreme court personally they're, they're what i call too smart for their own good so what that means is down here in georgia you know we're not ivy league educated all of us some of us are we call them snobs down here, but um, you know, I I look at this thing right, and keep in mind I'm a 20 year old college student, so don't you know? Don't think I'm the smartest person in the world. When you're listening to this, but I, I look at this and I go, okay, when do we consider a life over? When a heart stops beating. So legally speaking, it, I think it makes sense to, to start it when a heart starts beating. I know a lot of people, including my listeners, uh, they they argue conception, which I think is an argument. That is valid on it on its own. But I think that from a legal standpoint, it's really hard to argue exactly conception. Um, So I argue the heartbeat bill, I argue when the heart starts beating, that's when a life should start. Um, I I know you probably paid all attention to yesterday. Could you kind of break down what's going on amongst, I would say, the more conservative judges on how they want to rule? Will this be like multiple uh majority opinions. Like what what's going on there? I know Clarence Thomas, again from the great state of Georgia, is really doing a lot of good work in and making a personhood case.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the abortion rights argument has been categorized since the Roe ruling about surrounding a woman's right to privacy and a woman's right to equal access under the law to seek out an abortion there's not been a legal question of personhood you know i it, it's my opinion that when you you know when you're talking about you know because we have jurisprudence that gives women the the legal right to obtain an abortion if your conversation about the legality of abortion is anything other than personhood of the child, then you're forced to balance the competing interests of the, you know, quote-unquote, non-viable fetus and the woman. And in a legal setting, those scales tend to tip towards the mother. And there are difficult circumstances we find ourselves in uh, that that you know. Merit us taking steps to to ensure that women are cared for and that our families are supported, and that we you know we we provide for our communities, but until you can have that person in conversation and say that the Fourteenth Amendment extends to the preborn child, I don't think you get to a legal structure that act that that fully grants protection to unborn life and it sounds like you mentioned that justices Thomas and Alito seem to be leaning that direction that's what they want to see i think that that probably the 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 more recent conservative appointees on the court um the the trump appointees in, in particular they they may want to get there but i don't think that in their opinion the mississippi case is the way to do that um there there has you know there has been such a a far step away from the state's autonomy to to govern and protect the lives of its citizens on this issue that there has to be a step taken to grant that right back to the states to to restrict or prohibit abortion to protect those unborn lives. In this case, I think what we're gonna see is probably uh probably two or three majority decisions. Um, that are concurring to uphold the Mississippi law. But I think that one of those majority decisions uh, or opinions from uh, Thomas and Alito, possibly together, possibly split, makes that argument for full personhood. But I think it ultimately does um, leave Roe and Casey upheld, but it undermines their integrity and their original intent by coming up with a new structure to throw out the viability rule, Tip, you know, put their thumb on the scale and in the in the interest of the states and of uh, babies, and and creating a new concept of what an undue burden actually is and how the states overcome the uh, undue burden rule so that they can have a pre viability abortion ban.
2: Right, and the problem with the Supreme Court has always been that their standards are so you know vague. Like you gotta you gotta resegregate your schools. On a timely manner. Well, what is timely? Some schools took 15 years. What's an undue burden? If, if a woman's going to cry during the abortion because of the pain, that's an undue. Or uh, cry during the birth because of the pain, that's an undue burden. So it, it's just really uh, interesting. I, I do want to get your take on something that Justice Kagan said yesterday, when she basically compared um, an unborn child to a brain dead person. Um, and of course, you know, most brain dead people aren't going to aren't going to be fully viable within a couple of months. Um, but of course, you can't tell the left that. And yes, I guess what I learned also is during the Obama administration, there were a lot of letters leaked about telling Obama not to put her up on the court because she's not very smart. And I guess I have to agree with them. but I'm kind of glad they put him on the court because it makes them look stupid.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I actually was remarking, we were listening yesterday and and she said, you know, brain dead people can do spontaneous and surprising things. And I I turned to one of my staff and said, yeah, sometimes I get appointed to the Supreme Court. Uh, but I, I think that the 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 risk we run in using justifications against abortion, like fetal pain, while it does humanize the child and provide a, a, a secular neutral, you know, moral ethic to to argue against abortion, because oh, you're you're causing suffering to the human child. When you do that, you get into the nitty gritty of science, and in, in many ways her arguments are, are are heading in the right direction for the pro abortion position in terms of science because when when you have a, a a born human person and you see them responding to stimuli you can pretty well judge whether or not this is just an autonomic response or whether they're actually responding to pain I and mean, we see this with comatose patients with um, patients at different level of brain death um, You know, you look for pupil response, you look for autonomic muscle response, you look for respiration, but you can't – there's no gauge for the baby in the womb as to whether or not the baby's response to stimuli is pain, which brings in the moral argument of it's, it's wrong to cause pain, or if it's merely an autonomic response. And that's what she's getting at, and I think it's it's honestly a, a cautionary tale for pro-lifers as we not only pass laws but um, engage in, in rational conversation about protecting life. You know, th- there's got to be a better standard than it's wrong because it's ugly or it's wrong because it hurts the baby. There's got to be a consistent ethic that we use to defend the right to life and their the justification for prohibiting abortion. And I think her argument about, well, it's no different than, you know, brain dead person who twitches or whose, you know, foot curls when you run up, uh, you know, the ball, of your pen up their foot. And I, as as much as I want to, you know, mock the concept that unborn babies and brain dead people are comparable because that's what she's she's minimizing life in the womb by doing that. But she is using, you know, because we passed a fetal pain bill here in Georgia. That's the current law in our state It's the fetal pain law um, and. And we passed that back in 2012. I actually worked in the Senate committee, uh, Senate health committee when it actually came through and passed. And I've heard this debate pretty intimately, but it, it, it does, it keeps us away from the idea of humanizing the child and a consistent, you know, value of life ethic when we focus on the pain argument. Now I would be happier if the pro-life movement never had a, you know, never pursued fetal pain bills and rather went to, you know, if you're trying to instigate a, a legal challenge or whatever, I mean, go for like Mississippi did a 15-week bill, or go to a 12-week bill, or use heartbeat. Heartbeat's a rational medical argument, but I think that the the strongest argument that does not provide a weakness for attack from a legal standpoint is arguing the personhood uh, of the child in the womb. So, is it silly that you know you make the comparison? Yeah. Um, but I, I do think we should take note of what our opponents say and what they think and how they argue against our positions so we can constantly get better. And I think fetal pain, while it can be a partial justification, I think it's it, it, we can't lead with it, to be honest.
2: Right. I agree with you 100%. And for those of you listening, this is Joshua Edmonds, uh, Executive Director of the Georgia Life Alliance. Um, and I do want to, you know, I only got you for a few more minutes. So I do want to uh, give you a, a little bit of a platform to kind of, you know, tell us what. What you guys are working on the Georgia Life Alliance, everything, because you guys don't just, you know, try to pass pro-life bills, um, because you guys would probably go out of business right after this Dobbs ruling and, you know, the heartbeat bill uh, go into, but just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, what your organization is doing, what you're working on. Um, I know you announced a lot of the, a lot of good stuff at your gala a couple months back
1: yeah so you know you know we're the largest pro-life group in the state we're the state affiliate to national right to life and so that kind of means that we cover every facet of of the pro life movement here in, in the state of georgia you know not only are we passing anti-abortion bills we're helping elect pro-life candidates uh you know we're educating the community we actually I'll have like another six speaking engagements just before the end of the year um, at county GOP groups at church. I'm preaching a Sunday morning service at a Baptist church in Gainesville in two weeks. Uh, you know, so we kind of get to to fill the role of being the the primary voice of the pro life issue in Georgia. And so like one of the things that I'm passionate about with our organization is is that we actually are are trying to raise up a, a new generation of pro-life leaders. And we're trying to integrate the pro-life issue to be a part of the DNA of our churches, and so we've we've got a, a big initiative we'll be working on in the next few months to help provide pro-life um, educational materials to churches, um, especially uh, surrounding Sanctity of Life, uh, Sanctity of Human Life Month in January, and try to help our equip our pastors to be more educated, more bold to preach a pro-life message in their pulpits. Um, we're also going to be working on our, our next uh, oratory contest here in 2022. Um, you know, we we, sent, we train young people how to articulate the pro-life issue, and they enter into a pro-life uh, essay contest uh, or speech contest, and they compete at a statewide level to win real hard cash. We just rolled out a couple of scholarship programs for our winners, um, including a, a $1,000 college scholarship sponsored by State Senator Bruce Thompson. Um, and then we send our winners up to National Right to Life to go uh, to go compete nationally against the winners of all the other states. So we're we're kind of raising the bar in the quality of pro life education for young people. Um, we're also, I mean, next year we're going to have the National Right to Life convention here in Atlanta. Um, it's going to be huge. You know, pro lifers from around the nation are all going to con- converge on our on our you know capital city for the largest pro life education event in the nation, right ahead of our. You know our, our general elections this this next year it's going to be huge, um and so we you know we, we kind of get to be the tip of the spear and it's it's humbling and it's exciting, um and if anyone wants to get involved they can go jump on georgelifelights and see more what we're doing and volunteer and join us at the capitol in January or enter in our oratory contest and and start helping us build a cultural life,
2: right and I, I I can't remember his name but I guess the winner from this year or the past year. Uh, He did. He gave a really great speech. I believe he was only like 17 or 18, Um, you know, great. And then obviously Bruce Thompson does a great job. He'll pull a hundred right out of his pocket and just hand it to him, uh, which I think was unscripted. (laughs) But Bruce Thompson and he's got a great story as well um, that I personally didn't know. Nobody can say he doesn't have a reason to be pro-life after everything that's gone through there. Um, Now, uh, I do want to ask you probably the most controversial question you'll be asked this entire week. Um, you know, I've I've asked, you know, pretty much every statewide candidate and congressional candidate this, you know, Latham Sadler has the dogs winning by 17 points. I have the dogs winning by 127 points. You know, what's your what's your prediction for this Saturday?
1: I think it's gonna be a tough, hard fought battle, but I think uh, I think it's gonna be dogs by
2: nine. Dogs by nine? Okay. That that's respectable. Latham had them by seventeen. I thought that was a little low. Um so where so where can people find you guys on social media? You said georgialifealliance.com. where can they find you? Where can they find uh, the Georgia Life Alliance, in case they, you know, hopefully want to donate, so you guys can keep. Because um, your money really doesn't only affect uh, Georgia. I mean, your money could potentially, if the Planned Parenthood, or sorry, if the uh, heartbeat bill case gets upheld, could affect the nation. Um, oh, absolutely.
1: Uh, absolutely. You know, our our laws are are being modeled in other states. Actually, was just at a stakeholder meeting in D.C. back in September, and the good folks in Maryland were asking for the language of our uh, heartbeat bill so they could pass everything in our bill except the abortion prohibition part because they you know maryland is is you know so liberal but we've got you know tax deduction for a preborn child we've got uh tort law protection for pre-born children and we've got uh, child support payments for pregnant women uh, and they said, we want to go pass all those things in, in Maryland. So you know, your support of GLA is actually supporting uh, the mission of other states who are copying how great Georgia is. Uh, but you can go find us on GeorgiaLifeAlliance.com. You can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at GA Life Alliance. And we're on Facebook under Georgia Life Alliance. Uh, and you mentioned donating. So, hey, if you want to go to georgialifeliance.com slash donate, sign up to be a monthly donor. Uh, or make your charitable end of the year giving gift, Uh, you can go there as well and help support all of our efforts around the state to build a culture of life in Georgia.
2: Right. And of course, you want to send less money to Joe Biden because he's just going to hand it to the Taliban. So make sure you go donate to my friends over the Georgia Life Alliance. Exactly.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.